The reading for today is from Philippians 3, 12 through 4, 1. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything... And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have, I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, and their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You may be seated. Thank you, Allison, and thank you, Jess, for sharing. I said this the first service. When I was 17, I was in my room reading The Lord of the Rings, so it's good that other people were doing other things at the age of 17. Um, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church, Arcadia. Um, if you're new, I'm so glad you guys are here. Um, I just want to share real quickly before we get into this. Uh, so for the next four weeks, uh, you will not be seeing my face around here. My, uh, the elders have given me a sabbatical, mini sabbatical, which is going to be great, and I'm very excited. I'm going to have some rest. Um, and we're kicking that off, actually, by going to Disneyland. And uh, there's going to be eight children under the age of eight between my family and my um, sister-in-law's family. So if we die, you know what happened to us. Um, and as it turns out, we're also driving into earthquakes, um, which I don't know if you've been reading about that. So there's a lot of weird things happening there. But I uh, just want to let you guys know that. Um, but you'll see me again in August. Um, we're continuing in the book of Philippians. We're actually coming pretty close to the end. I think in a few weeks, we're going to finish up with the book of Philippians. And I think, and one of the things that I think has come out as we've read this book and as we study this book and why it's such an endearing book to so many people is that this is such a personal book of Paul. I think with maybe the exception of 2 Timothy, this is his most, he puts his heart into this one more than any of the others. This is less a large theological argument and more a pastoral encouragement where you get to see his deep heart for the people um, whom he loves in the church of Philippi. And it's incredible to see how God used this man, Paul, to proclaim his good news in that context. If there is any way that we can try to sum it up, um, it's in this, is that he's trying to encourage Philippian church to be faithful in following Christ and to be joyful in suffering for Christ. He's trying to encourage the church to be faithful in following Christ and to be joyful in suffering for him. What he means when he says following Christ is to follow him into that humility, into that emptying that Christ had of himself that he describes in Philippians 2. That Jesus, although 
being God, emptied himself of that reality so that he might be humiliated really up until the point of death. And he's saying that's what it means to follow him. And he's not necessarily saying seek out suffering, but he's saying, no, if you're following Christ, you are entering into a place where you will, in fact, suffer. And to rejoice in it, to be joyful in the midst of it. He's writing this letter from prison where he is himself suffering for the sake of following Christ. And so we're continuing that, and we're really finishing up today the bulk of the the main point of the letter. Afterwards, he's going to get a little more specific in giving specific encouragements to different people within the Philippian church. So he's really closing it off by driving home this reality. Be faithful in following Christ and be joyful in his suffering. So I want to put up the four points together of what we're going to be talking about because I wanted to write them in a way that was my best like TED Talk points that could be posted on an Instagram for anybody. Um, so the first is obviously be the best you, want to follow the right people, stay true to your tribe, and don't quit. Now, if you think I'm a heretic, let's find out. Because um, I think this is what he's saying, it, but he's saying it a little differently, and he's meaning it different from how we might hear it. So let me read just that first part, Philippians 3.12. It says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Not that I'm my full me yet. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul is saying, be your best you. The journey of sanctification is one of self-actualization. The difference in what Paul is saying from what we will hear elsewhere, the same message is that you, in Christ, are no longer you. What it means to be fully formed in Christ is to mean that we actually have to die to ourselves, be brought back to life in Christ. And so he is saying that the goal, what is worth it, is to become the real you. The real you is just different from what you might think it is. He's referring back earlier to what he says earlier in chapter 3. He, he goes through this whole thing, and, and Frank did a great job talking about it last week, where he, he, he basically gives his whole resume. Paul gives his resume, and it's honestly a really impressive resume. Paul was uh, an incredible scholar, um, highly regarded, influential, um, zealous. He was born, he didn't even like come into privilege. He was born with privilege within his culture. He had everything. And what he ultimately says is once he found Christ, once he found the good news of that, the power of that, he considered all of it garbage. He says none of it's worth it. It's all a loss for the gain of knowing Christ. And with that, he says this. He says, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him 
in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so what he is saying that is to him worth everything, worth giving everything, is to become more like Christ. The him that he feels he needs to be that is worth giving up everything for is him resurrected in Christ. And he is calling all of us in the church to that reality. And I think it's interesting because we have to see there is a tension in this. And this is a tension that Paul plays with the whole book of Philippians and really in in a number of other areas uh, that he writes in as well. That on the one hand, the job of sanctification is that of the Holy Spirit. So sanctification is just that process of us becoming more like Christ that he's talking about. That we lose that part of ourselves that is contrary to Christ and that we are formed more and more like him. That's what sanctification means. It says, on the one hand, that is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit through Christ. That he, he says earlier in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. So there is a reality that this is something that's going to happen because God's in charge of it. Just as God is in charge of saving us, he's in charge of sanctifying us. And that is 100% true. There's also something that he talks about where while we're in this, it is a straining and a striving and an effort. That this is not a passive reality. Sanctification is not something we can come into passively, but that we enter into actively. That there is work involved. And I know for many of us who have grown up in the church, the idea of work and salvation is a really, really dangerous topic. Because we immediately hear work and salvation and think that we're working to earn our salvation But Paul is not talking about that. Paul is saying once we are saved, we have to work to become the person that God saved us to be. I've heard uh, uh, the analogy of somebody showing up for boot camp, and they give them the, the uniform. They say, you're a Marine now. And in one way, they are a Marine. But another way, they're not a Marine, and they have to go through a boot camp, and the drill sergeant's going to do all this weird stuff to make them more a Marine. So in one way, they are. In one way, they're not. In one way, it's the job of the Marines to make them that, and it's one way, it's their effort and work that's going to make them that. It's not one or the other, it's both. And Paul uses that here to say that it's, it is a striving and a straining, it is an effort to work towards the upward call in which God has brought you. We have to understand that there is this tension. That to become our best you, to become our full selves in Christ, It's going to take work. It's going to take effort. It's going to be a straining and striving. He describes it like like an athlete striving towards the goal and the prize. That he calls us into that. And I think it's interesting the way he describes it because he describes it as a prize. I think that's really important remember. And this is the thing that I think is going to make all of this ultimately make sense. Is that when we realize that underneath all of this, what Paul is calling us to, what God is calling us to, to enter into the way of Christ, to enter into this this death into life that he has called us into, is to remember that the life is really good. It's better than anything 
that we could ever find on our own. That to truly have the life that God has called us to, to truly experience the world and, 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 and life as he intended it, we have to die and enter into it through that. That it's worth it. That it is a prize. That it is a prize worth losing all other things for. He's called us into that. So Paul desperately longs for us to be our best you. And our best us, our, your best you, is you in Christ. Second thing he encourages the church to do is to follow the right people. Let me read this. Starting in verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul is saying not only do you, we need to strive towards being our best to you, which for him is to die to ourselves and be made alive in Christ. He says we need to make sure we are following the right people. A really practical thing of what it means to look more like Christ is to find people in your life that look more like Christ and follow them. Now, I think it's really interesting because Paul says, not just follow the right people, but by the way, I'm the right person, if you guys notice that, which seems a little strange. It'd be like, guys, if you want to know how to live your best life now, do what I do, guys which none of you would do because you guys know me too well. Um, but that's what Paul is saying. And it seems a little arrogant, honestly, when you first read it, that he's, he has the audacity to say, if you want to live like Christ, live like me. The difference, and I think what is so important in this, is that Paul is writing this from prison. If you remember, Paul is writing this while suffering in prison. And there's, as you see through the book of Philippians, as he's writing this, there's no certainty whether or not he's going to live and survive this round in prison. Paul is writing from prison. He is writing from a place that most people would say, whatever it is you're doing doesn't seem to be working. Whatever it is you're doing doesn't seem to be succeeding. So why would we follow you in that? He is saying to follow my example even though it doesn't look like success. Follow my example even though it doesn't look like it's working out for me and in fact might even lead to my death. Because as you follow my example, you will also be following Christ. You have to follow the right people. And as we read this, I, I, I just want to point out just the, the, the emotion in it. Paul cares so deeply about this. He's so burdened by this. It says in verse 18, for many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Even with tears. This is how much he cares about this. It's how much he's, he's bothered by this. And just put yourself in his position. We, we saw earlier that he's talking, when he's talking about these people who are enemies of the cross of Christ, he's not actually even talking about people outside of the church. He's talking about people who are in the church who have chosen to ultimately try to contort the truth, contort the gospel to serve their own ends. He's specifically talking about the Judaizers here, which is a, something that uh, 
Frank talked about last week, in which if you've been around for a while, you've heard that term before. There were a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, who um, believed that you had to be Jewish before you could become a Christian. So this was a big deal at the time, that if they wanted to become a follower of Christ, the Judaizers would say you have to circumcise yourself and enter in and follow the whole law of the Old Testament before you can really follow Christ. And if you can imagine, for adults, Greeks, this was a pretty tall order. So he's pushing against that and saying, no, that, that distorts the grace of God. That's not what this looks like. And he understands that the motivation for them was not truly an adherence to the Bible, but because that put the Judaizers in a place of influence and power over them. It maintained the structures of power that the gospel, by tearing apart the dividing wall of Jew and Greek, of slave and free, of all that stuff, was subverting. And so Paul looks at this and he is so deeply grieved. He's so deeply grieved by the fact that there are people out there doing this, ultimately turning people away. And, and, and he's saying, don't follow them. Follow the right people, which means follow the people that are giving up their self, giving up their life, giving up all that they have for the sake of Christ. I think this is a really good metric. And this is a metric that I have to use on myself and oftentimes fail on myself. I ask questions, what I'm doing for the sake of other people and for the sake of God or is what I'm doing for the sake of me? It's really simple. Am I trying to feed the church or am I trying to feed my belly, as it says? I love the term that he says, that these are people where their gods is their belly. We have a toddler, and I understand this phrase of the God being their belly. That when they're hungry, they just become, I don't even think they're human anymore. Um, they just want to feed that. And that's how he describes these people. And yes, there is a greater reality of this in our world, but he's really talking specifically about people within the church, people who would use the church, who would use the gospel, who would use um, the structures of the church for the sake of making themselves better as opposed to pouring themselves out for the sake of the cross. That's who he's referring to here. And I think there's really uh, two things that we can take from that that I, that I think is really helpful. One is that Paul is saying to follow Christ, it's not as difficult as just reading this and trying to say, okay, well, I have to be like this. He said to follow Christ, part of that pathway is actually just finding people that are a little more godly than you, that are a little more Christ-like than you. And following them. And I think what's so encouraging about that is that there are people like that in this church. That this is an incredible opportunity to do that. That's why we encourage small groups. That's why we encourage you serving together with different people. Because you get to rub shoulders with people who, whether they're older or younger than you, are maybe more mature in Christ. And have better practice in giving themselves up for the sake of others. And as you follow them, and as you look to them... You can grow and be more like Christ. I think it's incredibly encouraging. It's incredibly practical that Paul is saying that. He's like, if you want to be more like Christ, follow me. Follow other people like me. That's what it looks like. That's why, you know, we do interviews like this all the time is because we want to 
give imagination of what it looks like to follow Jesus in different stages and phases of life. The other thing that I think is so important is that it pushes against this very, uh, very modern reality, this modern idea that we can separate a person's character from their results. Because I think that that's oftentimes what we look at. If we were to look at the results of what Paul is saying, Paul is in prison, probably going to die soon, and then the Judaizers are not in prison, probably maintaining wealth and power and status. And we say, well, look, one's working, one's not. And we see this happen in the church all the time. We see this happen everywhere else. We shouldn't be surprised anywhere else, but we should be surprised when it happens in the church. That we justify bad character, a lack of Christ-likeness in a person because they deliver results that we think are successful. That is not what Paul is saying. And we are not to follow that type of leader. He says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. One of the things that we, uh, one of our core values at Redemption Church is that we do the Lord's work the Lord's way. Um, And what we mean by that is, yes, we want to be about the things that God is about. We want to do the work of the Lord, but we want to do it with the attitude and heart that Jesus has towards it. I think we see this far too often, that people are willing to do this stuff and and act a certain way, and we justify it because we get results. And, And I'm always struck by what Jesus says earlier. It's one of the most terrifying passages to me, where it says, these guys, these people come up and say, I cast out demons in your name. I preached in your name. I have brought people to you in your name. I proclaimed, I healed, I did all of these things in your name. And Jesus looks at them and says, I do not know you. Terrifying. And it speaks to this. That the results are not the point. That the heart is the point. God is who brings the results. So Paul is saying, if we want to be faithful in following Christ, if we want to be joyful in his suffering, do these things. First, be your best you, which is to die to yourself and resurrect in Christ. He says, make sure you're following the right people, which are the people who are dying to themselves and being resurrected in Christ. Or dying to their neighbor, dying for the other, dying for their enemy, dying for those who might know Jesus. The next thing he says is to stay true to your tribe. Stay true to your tribe. This is something we hear all the time, that there is this reality of tribalism, um, that regardless of what it is, whether it's political tribalism, social tribalism, education tribalism, um, you know, we have all of these different things we're like pocketed into this stuff, whether it's Team Jacob or Team Edward. Um, we have all these things, which I don't think is a relevant thing anymore. Um, Twilight is a few years ago, but... Um, by the way, you should be Team Edward just because you actually know how it ends. Like, if you can pick the winner in advance, pick the winner. But, this idea of tribalism, we love to separate. We want to find our identity in these, these small defining tribes. And there is a common wisdom that says, stay true to that tribe. Stick with that tribe, you will find your identity in that. 
And Paul is saying the same thing, but just a little different. He says this in verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. See, Paul understands that sanctification is a process of repatriation. That we are going from one tribe to a different tribe. That we are going from one place, one citizenry, to a different citizenry. The difference is that the tribe that we are brought into, the family that we are brought into, the kingdom of God that we are called into is the one that is anti-tribalism. That is above all of those things. It is the one that says, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, man or fe- male or female, that we are all one in Christ. It is the one that is pushing against this idea of identifying ourselves in contradiction to the other. That that is what it means to be a citizen of heaven. To be brought into this reality. We have a new king, a new country, a new citizenship, and a new savior that we are awaiting. And the call of a Christian is to stay true to that, to remember that this is not our home. One of my favorite quotes by, uh, that describes the church is by Eugene Peterson. It says this, the church is a colony of heaven in a country of death. The church is a colony of heaven in a country of death. One of the things that I, I thought was so helpful about what Jess had said earlier um, and something that we've talked about in different ways is, is when you are confronted with a problem, you'll start to see the effects of it and you start to try to treat the symptoms of it. But ultimately, if you really want to address something, you want to go upstream to where the problem is actually happening. Uh, I've heard it described, you're sitting by a river and you start to see all these people drowning, floating in the river, and you work hard to separate, like save them, and that's important, but at some point in time, it's probably wise to start walking up the river and find out why all these people are drowning, right? That's what it means to go upstream to a problem. The reason I say that is because I believe when Paul says this idea that our citizenship is in heaven, that this is the upstream problem of a number of results of a number of issues that we see grow, particularly in white evangelical Christianity. That fundamentally, underlying all this stuff is we forgot what it means to be a citizen of heaven. In a speech by a guy named Mark Laberton, Mark Laberton was a pastor for a number of years, missionary for a number of years, the president of Fuller Seminary, has written a number of books. In a speech that he Uh, delivered to a group of evangelical pastors. He outlines four different issues that have arisen from our fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And I want to share this with you um, because I think that it's important that we reconcile and and understand that if we don't fix some of this stuff upstream, then we're always going to struggle with stuff downstream. So he he says this... um, The first comes an issue of power, that when we forget that our citizenship is in heaven, an outgrowth of that is that we we struggle with an issue of power. It says, in much of the last century, American evangelicals had a complex relationship with power. 
On one hand, it has felt itself marginalized and repudiated, defeated and silenced. On the other, it has often seemed to seek, even fawn over, worldly power, mimicking in the church forms of power evident in our culture. I remember being at a conference where it was announced we should all be back after dinner for an evening of star-studded worship. This points to an evangelical crisis over so many issues of power, racial, political, economic, cultural, right against left, Republican against Democrat, rich against poor, white against black, men against women, and so on. But winning power was the goal of Judas, not Jesus. I'm going to read that again. But winning power was the goal of Judas, not Jesus. A Faustian pact between evangelicals and power, even when claimed on behalf of the kingdom, cannot be entered in the name of Jesus Christ without betraying the abdication of power inherent in the incarnation. The second thing he sees is an issue flowing from our, our misunderstanding of our citizenship being in heaven. It's an issue of race. And he's particularly talking about those within a white evangelical context. And if you want to talk with me more about that afterwards, I'll be on sabbatical for four weeks. So, um, no, I, I would love to have a conversation with you about this. Um, but he writes this. He says, those of us who are white evangelicals must acknowledge that our story is intertwined with and often responsible for much of the violence and oppression around racial injustice in our American story. Stories of Native American, African American, Latino, Latina, or Asian peoples in the history of the United States cannot be told truthfully without naming the role of white evangelicals who testified to a God of redemption, but whose theological, political, social, and economic choices contributed to suffering and injustice. Stories of devastation are often absent from a happier white evangelical narrative of promised land life, or buried in a sanitized story claims that past injustice is not relevant for people of color today, despite the fact that nearly all people of color experience racism and its implications every day around the nation, including those in this room today. So he says there's an issue of power, there's an issue of race. He also says there's an issue of nationalism that flows from this misunderstanding of our citizenship being in heaven. He writes this, in the complex world of global politics and economics, religion and militarism markets and globalization, nationhood is part of the shifting landscape of human powers and forces. In a Christian hierarchy of kingdom values, nationhood has a legitimate place, but not a central or a top-tier one, and never one that displaces the authority of God. For white evangelicals to embrace a platform and advocacy that promotes, prioritizes, and defends America above all and overall is to embrace an idolatry that has only ever proven disastrous. And the last issue, he says, is the issue of economics. And he writes this, he says, it is very hard to read the Bible and ignore God's heart for the poor and the vulnerable. And then he goes on to talk about how oftentimes we make choices that subvert that because of our love of comfort. Because we forgot that our home is not here. One of the paradigm shifts that, that I think has been really helpful for me in navigating this, because I am, I grew up in a white privileged home, um, and that's not my fault, it's not my parents' fault, it's how it was, but I've had to reconcile, well, how do we interact then with this world properly? How do we interact with the scripture properly? How do we understand and navigate this properly? And I think one of the big paradigm shifts is switching to understanding our role and how we engage with this world, not as citizens particularly, but as exiles. 
Paul is referring to this here. He says, your citizenship is in heaven. You are exiles living in this land. Whether it's Rome, whether it's Israel, whether it, who, whoever is in charge, you are exiles living here. And on the one hand, just as Jeremiah called the exiles to live for the good of the city, to seek the flourishing of the city, to engage, to serve, just like Daniel who served at the king's court of a really bad king, we are called to do that. We are called as exiles to do that, but we are never to bow the knee. We are never to forget the songs of Zion in the midst of our exile. I think this is, this is what I think grieves Paul, that, that grieves me, it grieves me in my own heart that this is true of, of my own heart, that grieves me within the reality of the church that we have kept our bodies low, given up our glorious bodies that we can have in the resurrection because we'd rather cling to earthly power, to earthly citizenship, than recognize that our true home is with Christ. That we would rather keep these things, keep these comforts, keep these privileges, keep these powers, than recognize that we will have a much more true, real, beautiful life in Christ if we would just give them up. Paul is not angry about this because he just wants to be angry. He's angry because he, in his poverty, he, in his chains, knows the joyful power of Christ. That he had all of it stripped away, was left with nothing but Christ, and he is joyful. And he is so sad that this is something that continues to plague the church. It plagued the church, then it plagues the church, now it plagues our own hearts, because he knows that we are missing out on the greatest gift that God has given us, which is life in him. And that as long as we push against that, that we will be awaiting a Savior that is not Jesus. We will stay in our lowly bodies. And we will miss out on living life under the good king. So he says, he wants us to be our best you. Be your best you. Lean into the death that, and the suffering that comes with that death the stake of the resurrection. Follow those who are doing that. Understand that our citizenship, our true tribe is that of Christ. And that transcends all tribalism. That means that we don't bow the knee to any of the powers that are here. And the last thing he closes with, which is actually not a play on anything, it just is don't quit. The last point he makes, just don't quit. He writes in 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You can just hear the love that he has in this. I think this is something we can learn from Paul. This is a bit of a side note. But there's so much back and forth anger, I think, in the way we dialogue with one another. And what's interesting is Paul is really angry at times in this letter, but there's a huge difference between him and how oftentimes we interact, and that's that he loves so deeply. The reason why he wants us to be true in the life of the Philippian church, the reason why he wants to be true in our lives is because of love. 
he loves the church. He loves them. He longs for them. He calls them his joy and his crown, his beloved, his brothers and sisters. And he implores them in this moment to stand firm. Don't quit. Faithfulness is really hard. Being faithful over time is really hard. On the one hand, coming into Christ, being formed in him is free. It requires no effort. You don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to make yourself anything. You don't have to follow some law or anything like that. God's grace is free. And he saves us while we were still sinners. And that is incredible. It costs us nothing to gain everything. But at the same time, in a very different way, to follow Christ means that it costs us everything. And that means that the long-term reality of being a Christian, of being faithful in this, is going to be hard. It is going to be hard. It's going to be hard because there's suffering. Because we will suffer in the midst of it, both from the realities of the sinful and broken world and just because of our own sin or sin against us. It's going to be hard because of sin. Because we have put on the uniform of Christ but have not been fully made into the citizen. And that's a problem. And that's a, that, that, that is a process. It's going to be hard because it requires effort. This isn't something that will happen to us passively. And the effort is stuff that happens over a long period of time in a lot of mundane ways. We live in a microwave culture and the internet has not made it better. We're impatient people. I am an impatient person. We want to be sanctified now. But that is not what this looks like. And it's hard. But what Paul is saying is don't quit. And the reason he's saying don't quit, the reason he says to stand firm in all of this is because he knows that in the end, what we are striving towards is worth it. What we are striving towards is worth it. It is better than anything we could settle for by quitting. One of my favorite lines from a hymn is from William Cowper's hymn, um, There is a Fountain. And he writes this in the last verse. He says, when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Paul recognizes that there is, there is a challenge in this life. But the encouragement that he gives us, and the encouragement I want to give you, is that there is coming a day that we are striving towards when all of this stuff will cease, when the suffering, the grief, the loss, the, the pain, the sin, the brokenness, the shame, the grief that we feel, the divisions that we feel, the anger that we feel, the hatred that tears us apart, all of those things will one day end and we will be formed and all of that will pass away into the resurrection in Christ where he is king and it is good. It is worth it. So don't give up. If you're in the midst of doubts, I understand. It's hard. We're worshiping a God that for the most part is silent to us. That's not because he's cruel. That's just because that's the way it is. Don't give up. 
There's going to come a day when we will be with him face to face. Some of us who just feel like we're constantly under the weight of sin, that we can't be healed from that. Know that God has made a promise that he will heal you. That he will, in his day, make it new. Cling to that. Don't give up. Some of us are just overburdened by the mess of everything and just want to just retreat. Know that Jesus was also burdened by the mess of things and wanted to retreat, but he kept through it. He died in it and was resurrected into glory. Don't give up. Don't give up when, when all of it just seems like you can't go any longer. Paul says, don't give up. The reason he says that is because there's nothing greater than the righteousness we have through faith, dying and suffering with Christ and being born into his resurrection. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, we pray that that would be true, Lord, in our hearts. We know that it is just so hard, God, to trust that, to trust that in the midst of all of this, Lord, that your righteousness, your goodness, is enough to keep going, but Lord, we trust in faith what we will someday know in sight. Lord, that your beauty, your love, your forgiveness, your mercy, the reality that you will make all this new, that we will be one in your resurrection, God, is worth the fight. It is worth not giving up. Lord, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.